Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what fans were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and the 90s, generally in letters to Doctor Who magazine, and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to what's said in the letters, or it might go somewhere else entirely. This is podcasting without a safety net, folks. For this episode, I'm joined by Paul Hayes, author of the excellent Doctor Who reference book, The Long Game, all about what led up to Doctor Who returning to our screens in 2005, and who we interviewed about it last year. Hello again, Paul. Hello, Rob. Thank you very much for having me back on the show. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to be on here again. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I will say again, The Long Game, what a great book. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I've been been very pleased and very flattered with uh, with how well it seems to have gone down with everyone. It's been, uh, it's been great. I'm really glad that people have enjoyed it. Oh, that's fabulous. Are you intrigued as to which issue of Doctor Who magazine I have in front of me? I am. I'm just, I'm just desperately hoping it's it's not one with one of my horrible teenage letters in it. <laughs> no, I haven't dug up one of your teenage letters. Oh, phew. That's all right, really. It is Doctor Who magazine number 103 from August of 1985. Okay, that's, uh, that's going back some. I was 18 months old. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll appreciate these letters. I think there's some fun ones here. Let's kick off with a short one. This one's called The Mark of Anthony. Mr. Russell's comments on the Mark of the Rani, Doctor Who Magazine 101, were unnecessarily derogatory. And here he's talking about Gary Russell and a review that he's done. I cannot stand by and see the finest actor on British television insulted in such a manner. Anthony Ainley is, in my view, the best thing that's happened to Doctor Who. He and Colin Baker make the best team of good and evil since John Pertwee and Roger Delgado. Anthony is also a very kind and generous person and goes out of his way for fans at the conventions to make them happy, memorable occasions. That's from Miss G North, Cornwall. Okay, that's interesting because, I mean, I do have to say uh, that you don't often get a lot of fans sticking up for Anthony Ainley, do you? It, It does seem that he does come in for a fair bit of stick every now and then, which might be unfair. I always personally feel... A little bit guilty being critical of Ainley purely because um, when he died, Sean Lyon, who ran the Outpost Gallifrey fan site, asked me if I would write uh, a sort of obit piece, a little tribute piece about Anthony Ainley. Right. Uh, which I did. And then I don't think he had many close relatives, but his closest relatives that he did have, uh, someone living in Canada, I can't remember their name, they saw this piece online afterwards and they sent me uh, some bits and pieces that they had. They, you know, they had some signed uh, postcards and things, obviously, that had been left over from his estate or what have you. And so I, I thought that, would, that, that was rather sweet. And uh, oh, yeah, so I, I, I do always, even though I'm not a particular fan of his portrayal of the master or perhaps what he was asked to do with his portrayal of the master mm. i do always feel because of that a little bit guilty being too critical of him for, for mine i think some of ainley's performances are very good i think when the the right writing is there maybe the right direction i i've always enjoyed him in planet of fire for example whereas in king's demons i think he's maybe not so good <laughs> Interesting, yeah. I mean, Planet of Fire, like Mark of the Rani, they're the stories that I haven't watched for quite some... I probably haven't watched Mark of the Rani since the DVD came out, which is probably over a decade again ago now, isn't it? It's one of those ones mm. I should go back and revisit at some point. I mean, season 22 is next on the uh, on the Blu-ray box set, so um, maybe I'll go through and then see it again there. I, I mean... I don't remember thinking it was an awful story the times I've seen it. I just remember finding it quite dull, if you see what I mean. I couldn't mm. say that it was absolutely dreadful, but I didn't really find it very engaging. Yeah, for when I was a kid, I mean, you have all the stuff um, 
happening on the alien planet, which is also Lanzarote, of course, because they, they doubled up Lanzarote for the, for the alien planet as well. And I think there's like religion and stuff going on. And as a kid, I wasn't as into that. But when I got old, it's kind of like kinder. When I got older, I appreciated it more than I did when I was a kid. I don't know how you feel about kinder. Kinder, yeah, I, I rewatched that one again. Again, that's one I hadn't watched for a while, uh, and I had a kind of reverse process on that. It's one that I'd remembered the times I'd watched it before, really liking. And then when the season nineteen set came out, but the Blu-ray set came out a couple of years ago, I went through the season uh, on that. And uh, Kinder, I didn't enjoy as much as I used to. I actually preferred after I'd finished watching that box set, I carried on into season nineteen with the. Um, uh, oh, sorry, into season twenty with the uh, with the DVDs, mm. and uh, I, I found I much preferred Snake Dance. Snake Dance, I think, is a bit of an underrated classic. I really like the world building in Snake Dance. Yes. you know where they they casually refer to the the cultures and traditions and things in a way that doesn't often happen in Doctor. Robert Holmes does quite a bit of it in his scripts. You know, Andrazani particularly, and and others, and uh, Carnival of Monsters, which I was just rewatching the other day. He he does those little world building bits, but it's not something a lot of the other writers of Doctor Who do. But uh, Christopher Bailey does do quite a bit of it in Snake Dance and uh, and Snake Dance I think looks quite good whereas Kinder it's sort of got that that typical kind of multicam studio jungle mm. with the studio floor under a bit of sand and that sort of thing um, I mean I know you know you have to make allowances for, for the days of multicam studio drama and things it's never going to look like uh, uh, the real thing it's uh, it's almost like a kind of heightened reality but mm. uh, uh, it's interesting so we've got from, from Anthony Amy to Snake Dance in three easy steps <laughs> I, I agree on Snake Dance as well the uh, the scene where that that jester sort of character touches Davo with his little maraca or whatever it is, and then the the chap says, "Oh, you've got to pay him a coin now because he's touched you with." Yes, the, so the Jonathan Morris's character, whose name I can't remember, yet, explains the whole kind of stuff, and it's like. Uh, you know, you'd have a scene of someone explaining a real, a real thing, you know, in, in, in an Earth historical story or something. It, it's done in that very real kind of way, which I think, as I say, it's, it's rare for Alien Worlds in Who, particularly in classic Who. Yeah, exactly right. Let's move on. This next letter is called Sheer Stupidity. <laughs> the, the titles they give some of these letters in Doctor Who magazine of uh, mid-80s, it's quite funny. Uh, I must disagree with the opinion expressed by the esteemed editor of your magazine and Julie Fairclough on the letters page of the May issue. They welcome the return of the 25-minute programs, which I think is a retrograde step. The last series was a definite improvement on the Davison era. Perhaps this is partly due to the extended episodes. Scriptwriters feel they need to have tense endings whatever the length, but the situations that sometimes ensue would often beat Dick Barton for sheer stupidity. This trait by no means disappeared in the last series, see Mark of the Running, but at least these incidents were cut down. Colin Baker has created a character that can pull Doctor Who out of the stagnation left by his predecessor if someone can write a few decent storylines. And let's face it, they've got more months than usual. That's Andrew Waller from Rayleigh Essex. Interesting, yeah, the whole 45-minute thing. It's um, Well, again, we were just talking about Snake Dance, weren't we? And it's quite an infamous sort of, you know, manufactured cliffhanger in one of the Snake Dance mm. episodes, isn't there, where they're, where they're caught in the corridor. Yes. And uh, that one does come in for, uh, for a fair bit of stick. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, 
it's difficult to remember now because it's a while since I've watched most of the stories. But I think, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't remember having the impression that they were two 25-minute episodes kind of welded together. And I, I think I have heard that when they were uh, stood apart for the 25-minute uh, versions for repeats and, and, and in America and things, that there were some odd cliffhangers. Not as odd as some of the ones in the four-part <laughs> version of The Five Doctors, I think. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, the one, one where I particularly remember noting that kind of 45-minute structure was Attack of the Cybermen, which I think has a really strong opening episode. Yes. I, I find it very much a story of two halves. And then it all just all goes to pot in the second episode. But the first episode, I think uh, the first episode of Attack is particularly striking because um, you didn't often in those days, did you, get um, a contemporary Earth set story. And you've got the whole stuff with Lytton and his bank heist and all this kind of thing going on. And yeah. and it's around contemporary London, which which was quite felt quite un- feels quite unusual for Doctor Who of that time. And there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff going on, the whole idea of the Cybermen being in the sewers and all that. That's quite good. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember very much feeling that that was a, a definite kind of two halves mm. one. And uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, uh, probably actually the first season 22 story I ever properly saw would have been when, in the early 90s, BBC Two, the, the BBC's sort of second more niche kind of network, they ran a lot of Doctor Who repeats. And uh, in 92, 93, they did a story from each Doctor. And uh, in early 93, so I would have been nine, they ran Revelation and as a four-parter. And uh, I'm trying to think. I can't remember what the cliffhangers were, but I, I don't remember noting that, that it felt particularly odd. I remember in the archives in Doctor Who magazine, and- Andrew Pixie always used to note what the... Um, what the cliffhangers were in the four-part versions, didn't he? But mm. uh, uh, what, what do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel that that, 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 that it works like that? Or, or do, you, do you detect where there are kind of almost kind of semi-cliffhangers halfway through the episodes? I think there are sort of semi-cliffhangers, to be quite honest, uh, because we did see episodes cut into our 25-minute uh, lengths uh, down here. Uh, I'm, I'm interested, though, in the letter, the way this chap thinks the first Baker season is a big improvement on the Davison era. Generally, I, I, I don't find a lot of people who think that and who also th- thinks that going back to 25 minutes is a retrograde step when I think a lot of fans liked the 25-minute length back in that era. So this this guy is is putting forward some views and it's always interesting to, to see a primary source like this where someone is going against the grain of what you think people were saying back back in the day. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think we might have talked about this the last time I was on in the long game. Clayton Hickman talks about when he and Mark Gatiss and Gareth Roberts were putting their Doctor Who proposal together in in the early 2000s. They very much thought the return to that, not 25 minutes, because that wouldn't really work now, but half hour episodes mm. uh, was a good thing to do. They, they felt that that would spread the show out more throughout the year. They gave the stories more time to breathe. They saw it as uh, they didn't want perhaps the padding that they had been in the past, but they saw a series of three-part stories where you could have a defined beginning, middle and end and they felt that would work very well in that structure. Um, I suppose, I mean, Doctor Who fans, they're always... A lot of Doctor Who fans are always wedded, wedded, to, tra- wedded to tradition, aren't they? I mean, yes. if something has always been that way, then it must always stay that way. <laughs> it's written in tablets of stone. It must never change, which, given how much the series does change over its time, is a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, seeing someone uh, think the return of 24 minutes is a retrograde step, yeah, I, I certainly... No, I personally don't have the opinion that the, the first Colin Baker season is some sort of massive step up. I mean, I think they're two wildly inconsistent seasons, both 21 and 22. I mean, mm. 21, you've got Warriors of the Deep, 
Uh, I mean, we were talking about Gary Russell, weren't we? I mean, we don't we don't know how affected uh, the, the the review that uh, was talked about about Mark of the Rani was affected by the uh, the editing because there is that infamous Warriors of the Deep review he did where he wrote in his copy, uh, in no way uh, could you say that this is a classic story, which appeared in the magazine as this is a classic story. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Warriors of the Deep just looks so cheap and horrible. But then at the end of the season, you have. Andrasani, yeah. which uh, you know is is one of the, the widely regarded as one of the all time classics of Dog Two, and uh, there's nothing I think in that first Baker season that that, that is anywhere close to Andrasani. Again, it's a it's another wildly inconsistent season. I think the first episode Attack is Attack is good. I think Revelation's good. I think Varos is good, but I, I just think it's it's very up and down. I think that season for me. Yeah, agree. This third letter is called Man's Inhumanity to Animals. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I am writing to you in respect of your article entitled Retrospective, published in the June issue, number 101. The writer, Gary Russell, seems to have missed the ideas behind aspects of The Two Doctors, which he so readily criticises. The gore and violence in The Two Doctors seems to have received the worst of it, and I will attempt to answer some of the criticisms. Mr. Russell cites the Andragum cannibalism as lowering the tone of the adventure. First, in defence, I would quote the dictionary. Cannibal is one who eats the flesh of its own kind. I think that speaks for itself. Secondly, how can Mr. Russell forget so soon after watching it a quote from the Rani about humans? She said, they're carnivores. What harm have the animals in the fields done them? The Two Doctors, with its strong vegetarian theme and the Mark of the Rani, which was pro-conservation, are both reflections of a growing awareness of man's blindness to animals and nature. In The Two Doctors, the Andragums took the part of the humans while we were relegated to animals. And that's from Simon Higgins, Luton in Bedfordshire. The Two Doctors, yeah. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm, the Two Doctors is one of those rare Doctor Who stories that I read before I saw it, which I haven't done with many of the stories. But uh, I remember when my brother uh, left home when, when he was 18, he moved out and uh, we were we were clearing out some of the stuff from his room afterwards. And uh, he had a copy of the Two Doctors target novelization, which I found very exciting because, you know, this is, this is like Doctor Who archaeology. This yes. is some ancient text passed down. <laughs> and so I remember reading the novelization. Obviously, it's Robert Holmes's only novelization. I remember really liking the book, thinking it was it was really good. Mm. And then years later, I saw it uh, finally on screen and did didn't enjoy it so much didn't quite hang it together but but i think that that strand the whole androgum thing i actually think that works quite well i think um i mean maybe my memories are stronger of the book than they are of the tv version but i think shock eye is actually quite a good character quite a strong character but the bit i always really like is um obviously uh so uh, jacqueline pierce's character has been sort of genetically enhanced to try and bring her kind of above the level of the other and you know mm-hmm. to make her much more civilized but there's that great bit isn't there where where you know there's that whole thing about her conflicting nature and trying to go against her nature and there's that bit where she sees the little patch of blood on the ground and and, and the, her kind of nature takes over and she 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 drops down to the ground to to um you know lick it and yeah. going back to her kind of base instincts and uh I, I felt that bit worked worked really well i mean uh so yeah i don't have, really have a problem with the um the androgum kind of theme in uh in the two doctors i remember i think it's in one of uh toby haddock's uh who's round podcasts the, the ones that he did with russell t davis 
where Davis talks about writing Boomtown, and uh, he was very careful about the meal that the Doctor um, orders in uh, in Boomtown because he said he wanted it to be something four square kind of quote-unquote normal relatable uh, and he had this he talks about having this conflict so he's thinking oh Russell um, Robert Holmes made the doctor a vegetarian didn't he should, <laughs> should should the doctor still be a vegetarian can I go against what Robert Holmes uh, uh, wrote but then uh, Russell says I can't remember the exact example he uses but he says something like if if he ordered you know like a, a falafel or something he would you know the people uh, or something vegetarian the the, uh, the the audience listening watching home might think this has nothing to do with my life mm. uh, you know the, uh, so so that's why the doctor has uh, steak and chips in Boomtown but but Russell was very much thinking about should he do that given given the uh, the events of the two doctors and the doctor becoming uh, vegetarian so I mean, it's interesting how that that whole issue with the androgums and the food thing does does echo down the years but uh, yeah sadly for the vegetarians out there I think well that might might change again of course but i think uh, the doctor's vegetarianism uh, got uh, quite quickly forgotten <laughs> i was interested because i always forget there's sort of a conservation theme in mark of the rani so as well as that vegetarianism going on in the two doctors mm. you've got this sort of conservation going on in mark of the rani because classic who although people broadly say oh it's always been political or it's always been this or that these aren't examples that get pulled out with any sort of regularity, particularly the Mark of the Rani sort of conservation one, you know, whereas something like what what was the story uh, where the, the earth grew a forest and it reflected the sun's solar flares? It was a Capaldi episode. Uh, oh, uh, the forest of the night. In the forest it, of the night. Or, uh, yeah, yeah, people see that and go, oh, it's conservation. It's this, it's that. Whereas Mark of the Rani was doing that sort of thing, you know, decades yeah, ago. Yeah, I think, I think, the, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I do know what you mean. I remember, um, uh, you know, the Green Death is one that, I mean, you know, when people have said about more, more recent episodes, you know, uh, oh, I don't like this because it's banging you over the head with its message. And people say, well, what about the Green Death, the Green Death? And I do understand all those arguments. I, I think it I think it doesn't matter either way. I think you can have a story that that, that is just a, just a story, although whether that's true of any story necessarily, whether or, mm. or whether or not there's always some sort of subtext going on is, is a whole other discussion. It's probably a whole literature degree somewhere. But uh, I think people don't mind you having a message or a theme or a political subtext as long as they're enjoying the story. I think if, if, if they're enjoying the story and you carry uh, the viewer along with you, I don't think it's something that people either object to or maybe even notice particularly. I think people notice it less when they're enjoying the story. I think if people aren't enjoying the story, I think that those things perhaps maybe start to get in the way a bit more. I don't know what mm. you feel about that. Well, I think a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Although Mark of the Rani isn't regarded as a great story. Maybe it's just forgotten in general these days. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, yeah, I, I I do. My main memory of it is it of it being very kind of bland, and the most memorable thing about it is uh, is probably the Rani's TARDIS interior, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's amazing to think that they spent, I presume they spent a fair fair chunk of money on on a, a one off set like that. Well, it reminds me of of Flux and the uh, the headquarters for the division. That that set looked amazing with that big tree in the middle of that TARDIS like interior. And that was a one-off set. I thought, gosh, that could have been a TARDIS set used over many seasons, you know. But no, it was just a one-off. Oh, that's interesting, you see. I don't remember noticing that set particularly at all. Isn't that interesting? I don't remember being, I don't remember being struck by that set in any way at all. I, I, if you told, asked me to describe it, I would not be able to describe it to you. Oh, gosh, I loved that set. And it was massive, too. Yeah. 
But it's fascinating what different people notice and other people don't, isn't it? It's like the music, for example. People often say about particular stories, oh, I can't stand the music on that. Uh, and and I, I think I've just got a bit of a blind spot for incidental music because I don't generally tend to either uh, notice it as being either particularly good or particularly bad. It's not something I massively pick up on. Mm. Yeah, unless it's it's very intrusive. I, I sometimes don't myself and then I, I record a hot take and I get off and I think, oh, I should have mentioned the music, but it just wasn't yeah. in my head at all, you know. Yeah, which I suppose is a good thing. If it's not actively irritating you, then it's probably doing its job, isn't it? Exactly. And on that bombshell, we've hit our 20 minutes, Paul. That went by so quickly. It did. Amazing. Yes. Well, I hope there was something vaguely interesting in all of my rambling there. (laughs) I had a lot of fun doing that. The letters to Doctor Who magazine never failed a surprise when I open up one of these old issues. I'll tell you that much. Excellent. Well, I'm just worried now that on one of your one of these podcasts, you might come across one of my teenage ones. And I'm just saying, oh, I hope no discussion results from any of those. (laughs) Well, now you've tipped me off to it. I might keep my eye out, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being on today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Cheers. 